Everybody, welcome to another installment of Show to V with Mike G, the show of life, the show of Boulder, the show of Oaxaca, the show of Mezcal, the show of how I got introduced to Mezcal. Today's guest is the amazing, influential man of the world himself, Mr. Judah Cooper, the founder of Mezcal Vago. He's done so much for me. He's done so much for this industry. He is an amazing person, and I finally got a chance to sit down and chat with him about how this project came to be with Mezcal Vago, how his love of Mezcal, his love of Mexican culture, how this all came to be. You know, he's a touring guy. You hear the story quite a bit, but there's some pieces here that really go deep into the man himself, the explorer, the discoverer, in a way, the hippie, you know? Judah is a great guy, and I cannot thank him enough for spending some time to sit down and chat with me. Thank you so much to Francisco for making this possible. So without further ado, a long time chat coming. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Judah Cooper. Yeah, it's been a couple of years and I just have fallen deeply in love with Texas and uh and we launched our brand out of here. And yeah. so I got, I actually had one of my best friends from growing up was living here and really helped me when we f- first were getting started before, oh, no before we sold a single bottle. He's moved away now, but it was a huge help to be able to stay at his apartment. Where did he live? In Austin? Yeah. yeah. Oh, no he shit. Lived in Austin. Okay. He worked out here on the north side. He was a electric motor tech guy. No kidding. Yeah. So you have some deep roots here. And it, well, Not it so sense. much. I mean, it was so funny growing up in Colorado. You know, we had this like negativity towards Texas. I think the <laughs> downside of Coloradans right. is they can be a little bit aloof and stuff like sure. that. You know, and then uh, the more I fell in love with you know Mexico and the music and the history and then yeah. this whole cross border thing and the food and came down and started spending time in in Texas. I mean, I just have fallen deeply in love with it. It's and, everywhere, right? Like you can just you know as I'm. Like picking picking my finger up so for, to test the wind, right? There's the Hispanic culture is everywhere here, but it, in such a lovely, lovely way, in it a unique way. Yeah, you can't get that in Colorado. Can't and you? the music, just the the, the you know yeah. Texas tornadoes and all that <laughs> stuff. I just I I love it. I love Dude, well, no wonder you get along with John. John's an aspiring songwriter for some time now. You know. Oh, the photos are gold, aren't they're, they? They're golden. Yeah, it's pretty brilliant. So. It's good that you're back in town, and I'm glad that you've got Cisco on the man on the ground, running and doing all of your bidding, which is killer. So for this time in Texas, you just come in to hang out. Is there a particular product you guys are going to be talking about? I know there's a new new pr- producer in the Mescal, Joel, right? So yeah, Joel Barriga. Joel. Yeah, and um, that we've been that, that's part of it. The biggest reason I would say is me and Francisco have not worked together in the market yet. Oh no, kidding. Yeah, so. And I just missed Texas, and I wanted to. I really wanted to come see Houston Eves down at yeah. the Esquire because he spent seven months with us down in Oaxaca working, and got to be really good friends with him. And wanted to come, you know, see what he'd done with Esquire downstairs and the Mirador, and yeah. you know, really kind of like you know, give him 
credit and 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 you know see what he's done with himself and it's just it was phenomenal to see that and and then to be able to work with Francisco in the market yeah. together was great for both of us. I mean, there's a, you got a you, you had a dream team. Not like do you fancy yourself a guy who has a good eye for talent? I do. You know, I do. I mean, it, when I go to like hire someone, which I you know, I haven't done a ton of that but a little yeah. bit, there's only one piece to the puzzle. You what know? is it? What, okay. We care to explain what this piece is? Well, I mean, I just, for when I'm looking for someone, it's, I have such a specific idea that by the time I've narrowed it down, there can only be one piece of the puzzle. <laughs> okay. And and with Francisco, the funny thing is, is I already pretty much had it in my head, but I was hanging out with Jake Parrott yeah. down in Oaxaca, drinking at our little private bar down there. And he goes, you know, there's only one person for the job, right? And, he, and I'm like, thinking and he's like francisco draws us and i was like i knew it you know i I literally like called francisco i was like okay i'm not fighting it anymore called francisco and was like okay i hope we don't make bobby hugo mad (laughs) was he trying to court you as well no not at all you poached him we we plucked him and and we tried to do it in the best possible way because obviously he was the gm at the pastry war and we you know we have so much respect um for bobby and 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 you know, it did. You know, we were very nervous about that, and I think we did it the best way we could. And it's been, I think, really the right thing for Francisco yeah. with where he's at in his life, and um, it's just been wonderful for us and our family. Yeah, I mean, it's a God. You think about it, Houston and Francisco. Eventually, you'll have an all-star band. You have to start figuring out who's going to play what. I don't know what you'd play. Maybe, maybe you'll sing. I played bass in. Uh, okay, there we. That's good. In high school. I was pretty. I'm a terrible musician. <laughs> That's what we do. We get in the booze industry when we're bad at other things, I think. So, all right, this, there's an amazing impetus for Mescal, for Vago, and we'll talk about that, of course, because that's really, it's kind of a cute story, right? Meeting your wife and being a surfer and aloof, maybe, as a Coloradan. But this starts much earlier, and you are from Telluride, or where did you grow up in Colorado? Yeah, I'm born and raised in Boulder. Boulder, okay. Yeah, okay. and then about when I was 18, I just, I tried to go to college for a half a year in, yeah. in uh, Durango oh, okay. it was the only place I could get in I I just thought for my whole life hated to be around people my same age that looked like me and really yeah I just like I was miserable in high school and I had you know good test scores reasonable test scores yeah. and on like SATs and stuff like that and I remember and but I did not have great grades and, sure. I, and I felt like okay I'm gonna really give college a try I was excited about it and uh I was going to go to Fort Lewis down in Durango, and I called them, and I was like, does it actually matter if I graduate? <laughs> then they said, no, that doesn't no matter. Just take your GED, and you can come down if you want. So I did that, went to Europe for a little bit, then tried to tried to, tried to to you know go to uh, college, and yeah. it, it wasn't for me. I just was miserable. I signed up for philosophy at 7.30 in the morning <laughs> and made all every mistake and was just uh, you know suffering and, and went to Telluride. And went skiing with a friend, and was like, "I'm gonna move there." And I'm never. And I, so I decided to go skiing, and went skiing for 15 years. Oh my gosh, that's incredible! Well, so when you think about, so my mom is a big influence in me and in how I looked at the world. She's what made me interested in it, right? So you can be in Boulder, and I know it's a very white town. It's beautiful. It's easy, right? But for you, when you think about the larger world, the larger set of cultures that kind of are outside of Boulder, what what do you was your introduction to that? What kind of drove you to get out of that town? I mean, I was very fortunate to grow up where I did, um, and I was able to travel a little bit with my family, yeah. and it, I was just hugely inspired um, to be in other cultures, and to, like I was saying, just to be 
in places where it wasn't like a lot of tourists to be just to be in a place where I was special and yeah. different you know I think when you're at that age kind of coming of age it, it, that's sort of a natural thing for some people and um so of course we're you know a place like Boulder where we have you know great cuisine from all over the world mm. so we're, we're we got the influence of that um there is some Latino community there and and then we we did great trips we did one trip to Europe and we did a couple of trips down to Mexico oh cool um but more I think it was my relation with nature that I mean, it was such a wonderful place to grow up as a kid where we could ride our bikes all around. We could, at the end of a middle school, we could actually take a, a bus up to the ski area, Elora, yeah. and ski and, and really be just, we could really find ourselves and relate, you know, with nature in a huge way. So that's why I moved to Telluride and just, just to be in, in even deeper, higher mountains yeah. and, and really, you know, um, look at myself as part of the earth and not, not unless... I was much more on the outside of like humanity, I would say. That's incredible. In did, did it ever have an impact on the way that you lived your life in terms of how you ate or how you dressed or those kinds of things, being connected to nature? Yeah, I mean, it just, it just, my whole way of being was just like, I just wanted to be out in nature alone or yeah. with like a couple of close friends as much as possible. And, and that's what we did. I mean, we skied a lot on the ski area, but, but by the end, we just skied backcountry all the time and it's just you and a giant mountain range yeah. and, and no friends and and then the wonderful thing about being in a in a in that situation where you're working in a resort town is there's off seasons on either side of the of the peak summer and winter seasons mm. and where there's just no work you can't you, all the restaurants shut down um, and so we did a ton of traveling and so that really you know i just wanted uh, you know it really sparked my my uh my hunger to, to travel and see the world. And I was yeah. able to, uh, very fortunate to, to travel to Asia and Latin America. That's incredible. Uh, a lot of places. And, uh, Did you start to develop, there's a couple, couple of ways I want to go with this. Did you start to develop an affinity for Mexican culture at some point? Or because Asian is so, so profoundly different, but still, again, very driven by alcohol and driven by cuisine. But how did you kind of start understanding maybe you had a favorite, you, you leaned a little bit? I think I leaned more towards Asia. Really? You know, I did a bunch of trips to Asia, Nepal. I got really into paragliding, actually. No kidding. Yeah, and we we went. I went with some kind of peers that were a little older than me, and it's a really intense sport. And I was friends with these guys that were a little more like one guy. He was, you know, had somebody eight thousand meter peaks, no and kidding. and other guys were, you know, big wall climbers. And right. we were in this intense sport, and they were movie makers, and we went and tried to fly together across Nepal away from the highway. Holy shit, I was really out of my element, but I was able to do a bunch of trips to Asia and like push myself, you know, mentally and physically yeah. with, with some peers there. And, um, but then I got really into surfing and I, I was, it sounds silly, but I'm such a single minded person. So I was, when I went snowboarding for 15 years, I like literally all I thought about was snowboarding. Like, Try, was it to be better at the sport or you really were obsessed with it? Obsessed with it and yeah. to be better at the sport. I mean, I was snowboarding since I could, you know, walk pretty much. And um, I went to bed early. I was never in the bars. You know, I, hadn't, I probably hadn't bought five bottles of liquor in my whole life. And okay. I never worked front of the house or anything. I was always just a dishwasher. I worked two jobs in the summer and lived right. in a tent to save money so I wouldn't have to work most of the winter and and we would just wake up you know early early first chair and and just a total dedication to, to it seems silly, so it's like but, no it, it doesn't because I love it. that's how you get great at something 
you, you can dabble. The thing that really bothers me about one of the pluses to having as much information as you want on the internet or in person, I mean, I can ask you any question I wanted about Agave Francisco too, right? But the problem is, is that people just dabble. So to go deep and singular into something really gives you a level, level of expertise that a lot of people don't get into now. They're just like kind of flighty, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's wonderful to be okay at a lot of things, and that is really fun to be yeah. that sort of renaissance man yeah, that can exactly. do a little bit of a lot of things. But to dedicate yourself and break through the, the tough times and the barriers and the plateaus and, yeah. and actually like learn all that you can about snow conditions and things like that. It sounds silly to people that don't know, but that, but that people that do know. Um, I think it's, a, it's incredible. It is. I mean, we'd go skiing every weekend when I lived in Salt Lake, and there is something magnanimous about the mountains they're magical you know so i get that like wanting to connect with nature like that for, for you when you talk about nature which is maybe this constant thread is it a spiritual thing for you like is it connect you to something larger than just nature yeah i mean i felt like my whole life i was on the outside looking in i think that's probably pretty common yeah you know um <clears throat> we didn't have um excuse me <clears throat> We didn't have, you know, a religious family or anything. Right. Growing up in Boulder, I was, you know, turned on to some spirituality. And as soon as I was 15 or 16, could read great books, yeah. you know, on, you know, kind, kind of discovering who I am and my place in this universe. And, sure. um, and uh, so being in nature was, yeah, the way that I could leave behind humanity and really just like, become one with you know it's, it sounds pretty hippie-ish and, and i guess it is but it just like that feeling of when i was snowboarding alone on a mountain and yeah. i would i love to solo i love to just hike a mountain and snowboard deep outer down some peak by myself mm. it's where i felt the most you know at home and and the most at peace um and until i had my daughter you know much later that was the first time i actually felt like a human like that i was really? you know grounded on this earth and not on the outside looking in you know but it's got to be knowing both sides right it's got to make you pretty balanced being grounded having a family now and then also traveling the world for just these pure moments it's a huge level of contentment i have you know i'm so lucky to have had the experiences i've had to take in the risks i've taken in life and have them and come out on top and not have it go the other way. <laughs> like literally, yeah. you know, paragliding craziness yeah, like, or snowboarding in avalanche terrain sure. or, you know, doing stupid stuff as a kid or what, you know, on, yeah. on other levels. Um, but there was never a moment where you were surrounded by so much danger that you're like, well, this was a good run. Maybe I'm not going to make it out of oh, here. Oh, are you kidding me? I mean, yeah, no, I mean, in Nepal when we're flying there and we're three days from the highway and, you know, I'm, I'm, 8,000 feet above ground level yeah. and I'm taking a huge whack and my wing ties in a knot oh, and you're shit. falling to the ground and if you have to solve the Rubik's Cube before you hit the ground yeah. and there's no time out and you know it's yeah no there was <laughs> literal <laughs> moments as well as like yeah you know figurative ones in, in in life as I was growing up so it ultimately leads to you when did you start focusing on surfing so then, you know, I, I just got content with snowboarding. And I, I think naturally as you like get into your 30s and I started to not be getting better at it. Oh, really? You know, I almost was, of course I was, I, you know, snowboarding plenty of, of powder. Right. I was pretty dedicated even to other parts of like 
freestyle and mm-hmm. spinning and flipping and Absolutely. crazy stuff. And at some point, I was just not getting better in it. So I was bored. And also living in a valley of 2,000, 3,000 people for a long term is is tough. I mean, yeah. it's tough trying to have relationships sure. with women and, and all of that. And um, so I wanted to focus on something else. And I, I had been surfing you know, a few times, you know, going down to Mexico in the right. off season here and there, but I had never really taken it up seriously. But it's just such a natural progression from being like a young skateboarder and then wholly dedicated to snowboarding to, to wanting to really surf. And it seems to be the hardest, you know, it's the moments are so fleeting. You, you spend so much of your time just paddling and dodging people <laughs> right. and, and waves. Like, where's the you, action? Give me the action, right? Yeah. And so I, and so I, um, decided to get into surfing and I of course my the way I approach things is I get totally obsessed with one thing so I was I had actually you know bought a house in 2004 and um so it was before that kind of crash and stuff and and I had got a real job for the first time I was a production manager at a newspaper no kidding yeah and uh does that feel uncomfortable it was totally awkward and uncomfortable and it was the sign of the times. I mean, I literally, I had been all those years in Telluride, and then I spent two two different winters over in the French part of Switzerland oh, nice. being a ski bum. I'd come back, hadn't filed taxes in four years, <laughs> didn't have a job, and walked into the bank where I had a relationship for years just from growing up, you know, coming of age in that right, town, right. and signed a blank loan application. Shit, and dude. they gave me enough money to buy a house. And so I, like, literally, the way I got the job you know, I went into the newspaper and I said, you know, yeah, oh, I know how to do Photoshop. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he gave me a little test. He's like, you don't know what you're doing. I was like, no, I don't. But I have a mortgage and you've got me trapped. Like, I will be here. And this was a friend of mine, uh, Jason Merritt. And he, he used me as his way to get out of there. So he trained me for a couple oh, of years. I became the production manager and he took over. But it was awkward and uncomfortable for me. And I wasn't all that happy. And I, so I was able to finagle a job in Maui uh, for the summer working at a magazine doing design Amazing. and that got me out of there and then I realized that I wanted to sell my house and 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 uh and I did luckily right before the crash a good friend of mine who's no longer here we argued for six months about the impending crash and yeah. he just he convinced me and I sold it probably six months before the crash luckily. got out right before the wave crash and yeah. barely made any money I made like you know for the first time in my life had like a little bit of money yeah and so I just went surfing for five years till I ran out of money it's amazing and just I would work two jobs to get you know more money buy a cheap Toyota truck and just drive the Pacific coast from California to Peru and go till I ran out of money and uh and uh you know fell in love with my wife down there and you know she got pregnant we got married and and uh i was broke then <laughs> really had to figure out what to do and that's how you know vago was born it's i mean when are you gonna write about this stuff because it's so cool that like, it's just it, it really does feel like distinct jack kerouac kind of chapters you know it's interesting i think about that like i think there's a story there that'd be really interesting yeah but I'm so lucky and everything goes so well that I feel like it would be almost like people are going to read and hear my story and just be like irritated. They're going to yeah, be like, ah, like, oh, that guy, you know. He's, he's, just, too, he's too lucky. And I do feel that way. I do feel that way. And so I try and approach life as I hope to be an inspiration to people yeah. in, in some level to chase your dreams and and and, and do that. And, and um, I would like to write it. But you know, it's a, the story's not over, and so there's right, no ending true. yet. So maybe in a, maybe in another twenty, thirty years. Well, do, does mentorship as a, as an entrepreneur and a 
a guy that's really lived a lot of different situations. Does that kind of appeal to you as well? I mean, it definitely does. Uh, you know, when things happen organically and naturally, I'm, I'm into, I'm yeah. into that. For You're sure. open to it. Yeah. Well, so obviously we're here because of the biggest chapter and the most robust and the most opportunity surfaced from a sip out of a gas can, from what I understand, reading the ways that you've recanted the tale of being introduced to Mescal, but you were still not drinking much at that point, or had that changed? No, I was never a big drinker, and I'm still not a big drinker, yeah. really. I can not really hang with all these amazing bartenders that I get to meet and stuff. And But, I mean, in the, when I tried my first Mescal was way back in 94, and it was one of those trips out of the mountains in, in the off-season. Yeah. Um, I was with... Uh, Dylan, who's our business partner in mm-hmm. Vago and, you know, one of my best friends of 25 years now. Um, and this was, you know, early on and we were in Oaxaca City and we were on our, we were going to go down to the coast and um, we were walking to get breakfast and we got trapped in one of those narrow colonial cobblestone streets. Oh, yeah. And the, a, a parade of kids that had graduated their school was coming down and we tried to kind of blend into the doorways and they just grabbed us and surrounded us and circled us and gave us gas cans. And we hadn't oh, even no. had breakfast. And, you know, we tilted that back and it actually tasted like gas. <laughs> no, it was, I was Did surprised. Did it rinse out first? It's kinda... No, I mean, I don't think it was that. I no, think it was just mezcal was so strong and I hadn't drank. And who knows what quality of mezcal it was. And, yeah. um, but we got, you know, drunk and joined the party and walked around. And there's a great picture I have of Dylan passed out on the floor of the hotel, <laughs> covered in flour and water. And there's, he's next to a comfortable bed, but yeah. still sleeping on the hard. You missed it, floor. oh man. So, but that was, but then it was years before it was, you know, uh, ten years before I tried mezcal again. Uh, wow. And you know, yeah, I was never a drinker even when I got into this. You know, when was the moment where it became something that you felt expressed your passion for nature? Because that's what mezcal is for me, and talked to Cisco about it, how transportative it is. It takes you to a place, a time, and it, it's all very, very plant-driven, terroir-driven. Yeah, it's so funny talking about mezcal so much here in the U.S. and teaching people about it. And anyone who goes down to Oaxaca pretty quickly realizes that it's so much less about the mezcal and so much more about the culture and, right, and the yeah. place. And for me, mezcal is much more food. I've always loved food, and my favorite thing you know, traveling is to eat the foods of the culture. And so I look at that, the mezcal flavor wise as foods. And I, I love, you know, having four or five of them next to each other and, and sipping them, uh, you know, and, you know, tasting the differences and, Mm -hmm. and really thinking of them more as food. And, um, so to me, my route in was so backwards. I mean, I married into this family and, the, one of the first sips of mezcal I had from my father-in-law was taking my, you know, wife up up there to this ranch, and she was supposed to help me. And my Spanish was still pretty broken, and yeah. I was going to ask for her hand in marriage. And I hadn't met my father-in-law; I hadn't met Aquilino oh, yet. Man. You know, she was uh, Valentina was pregnant, and you know that of course we weren't set in saying. And uh, I went to you know i went to i went to tell you know, ask for his hand and he oh. gave me a sip of mezcal then and it was puntas oh you know, the, man the heads and they were very strong and um so i mean it was still new and and you know i i got into it from just way more about the culture than ever about the booze and was so lucky to marry into a family that actually has incredible mezcal and now i realize how rare it is how there are so much mezcal but the actual exceptional mezcal is is pretty limited yeah it's it's changing 
when did Vago as an entity, that first bottle, that first label, when did that kind of end up in your hand? That was Texas. You know, we, we launched it in, in April of 2013. And oh, from the moment I went through some really heavy stuff in Mexico, it's a, it's an intense place. Sure. And, um, you know, I've had, it's a watching, you know, the ups and downs and the, the way that people suffer there and the, the bad things that can happen and, um, was really intense. And, and, uh, at one point I, I wanted to get out of there and we, we, I, we took a bus down to Costa Rica, me and my wife and, um, we thought we at that point we had 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 a little shack that we rented on the beach and mm-hmm. that's where we made enough money just I was the cook and the waiter and the bartender and we were selling a little bit of my father-in-law's mezcal just in in copitas yeah. you know um, and we made enough money for my daughter to be born and to take a trip down to Costa Rica and we thought maybe we would open a, a restaurant in Costa Rica a Mexican restaurant where it would be um, you know we could it would be a little bit more calm than sometimes sure, Mexico is yeah. and we could escape some safer too, right? Safer. And we had been through some pretty heavy stuff. And, um, okay, so I got to ask you, when you talk about heavy stuff, do you mean family drama? Do you mean violence? Yeah, violence. I mean, I've lost multiple friends, Americans and, you know, and Mexicans, yeah. um, in Michoacan. It's really Cartel sad. related I, stuff. Or it's even, hard to say. Yeah. One of my really, really good friends, the guy that convinced me that the, the crash was going right, to happen right. and convinced me to sell my house and had been a huge inspiration in life. He's just a, a real adventurer. He, and we had sailed together. We had, we had, we had flown across Nepal in oh, that wow. movie. We had, we had hitchhiked a ride on a sailboat from Thailand to Indonesia, you know, to go wow. paraglide in Indonesia. We, and, and we had sailed also down from California on his sailboat one time down through Mexico. And um, he was sailing down through Mexico. And his we had never gone to that place in Michoacan where I had spent two years living and surfing in yeah. a little town, a beautiful little town. And um, his boat one day washed up on the shore in that town that I had spent two years. And at this point, I was living down in Oaxaca. Yeah. And I can't, had to come up uh, and pick up his dad at the embassy an 80-year-old man that had never been outside of the U- the U.S. and it was really heavy. And I wow. had to drive between you know Michoacan and Colima and Jalisco and into the heart of and the 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 headwaters of the not even the headwaters just upriver from where this surf break is mm-hmm. um, is where there's a lot of drugs produced and uh, it used to be marijuana and now it's heroin and meth and um, they use that river um, and the people in that town have suffered greatly and wow. uh, so I had to go and really kick the hornet's net hornet's hornet's nest um and which was really tough so i left my my you know one-year-old daughter and my wife alone in oaxaca down on the beach and came up there and had my friend's dad and and corrupt police and traveling between three jurisdictions and talking to friends that i had known intimately mexicans from that town natives that were terrified when I was asking them questions about what might have happened, and you know, we're it was really heavy. That's incredible. What know? year are we talking, roughly? Oh man, that would have been around 2012, I guess. Jeez, yeah. so not that long ago. Yeah, not that long ago. Is it a more more or less stabilized now? No, Mitchell Khan's a total mess. You have three factions fighting. You have you know the narcos. Yeah. Uh, you have indigenous people fighting for their rights and vigilantes trying to take back their territory, and then you have the government sort of fighting yeah. both sides. Um, there's a great movie on Netflix that a good friend of mine made, Cartel Lands. That's I've heard, it. yeah. yeah. So I didn't see it yet, but it's in my queue. Yeah, a good friend of mine uh, 
helped make that produced it. And, wow. and it's a wonderful take on how complicated the problems are and a really uh, natural look at, at some of the, the real problems there. So that, so that was really heavy and that among with other <laughs> problems even more that we won't get into yeah. everything. But I mean, just that's a taste of it. You know, losing friends is super heavy. And, well, and you're a new father too, right? I mean, that's I'm a new father and, we, you know, we stayed there right up till the moment where I said, I told my friend's dad, I said, you know, we can't be here any longer. We are at the point of serious risk to our lives. Right, right. Um, we need to, you know, when we, you know, we had a battle about the best way to go forward. It was very, very dramatic. And you can imagine it was heavy for me, his poor father. You Absolutely. Know, he's totally out of his element. Um, and so we never found out what happened to my friend. We tried so hard and, uh, and, 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 you know, I left that and came back and we decided like, Hey, let's, let's take a trip down to Costa Rica and chill out. And, yeah. but we got down to Costa Rica and it's just so different than Mexico. It, you feel like you're in Florida sometimes <laughs> in some of those spots and we didn't want anything to do with it. Yeah. And so, you know, I took it, had a month down there and chilled out. We took the bus all the way down there with my daughter, 52 hours or something like that. And, and uh, and we decided with Dylan, I talked to Dylan and he had tried, you know, he'd been up and visited the family at that mm. point and he had helped me open my, you know, helped fund our little bar restaurant thing that yeah, we opened yeah. on the, on the, on the beach. And, and we said, let's go for this mezcal thing. And so we like scarily like went, you know, I was a little bit upset and we went back to Oaxaca and, and started. And it was from the moment we decided to do it till the, we had the first bottle mm. uh, in, in Texas was just nine months. That's and, it. I pushed so hard and fast. I don't think anyone's ever launched a brand that quickly from concept to like sales. Yeah. Was it, it was, I, I imagine, and you know, I'm not trying to overanalyze it, but the, I imagine for me mentally going through some sense of loss and kind of maybe even a crisis of some sorts, like let's super focus on this thing to get my mind off this shit. It's not even that. I mean, it was pure necessity too. I mean, I had a wife and a daughter yeah. and no money, you know, and you know, we each, Dylan and I each put in $7,000 to start the business, except I didn't actually have $7,000, so I <laughs> borrowed it from yeah. Dylan. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and uh, I mean, I, we didn't have a car. I, we, I just had my bicycle in Oaxaca and yeah. put this thing together. But, you know, the, the experiences we had and those tough experiences, and I, I, I almost never talk about that violence that we experienced because I'm, I just don't want to glorify the violence and in Mexico, I can't watch any of those narco movies or yeah, anything because yeah. it's just so personal. Um, it's really tough. So, I, so the the way we went about setting up Aga was really, we you know we had, of course it's my family, so it's my yeah. father-in-law. We had agave, we had mezcal. You know, let's bottle it, let's label, let's export it, let's actually import it. We didn't want to step on anyone's toes. I didn't want to feel like I was taking anything out of anyone's mouth, business-wise. Right. You know, at that point, I'd also had my my beach bar thing on, on the coast. So I had felt what it's like to have a place that's open to the public with alcohol involved. And yeah. so I really wanted something totally separate. And we really launched Vago. And I, I, I hope, and I think, you know, we've made friends with some people like Ron Cooper yeah. and, uh, and those guys, I think we've earned some people's respect by doing things really our own way or, or by ourselves. Yeah. And, and that's a big reason we went about doing that was because of the experiences um, from earlier. We're playing, paying homage to the culture again you know this bottle is the closest thing i've got to being transported back to those people you know it's cheaper than a plane ticket well some of the some of the some of the mezcal depending is not but but that's one of the things that's so amazing about it and so we're here now 
and you've been in operation for is it just over four years now coming up on five yeah yeah it's that's a crazy right do you feel different now it feels like a lifetime and also like a minute you know it's so funny to say those opposite things but it really does feel like both i mean yeah i feel like a totally different man and um i'm just so content and happy and but i'm also nervous and worried constantly for my family you know for our success for the industry um so it's 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 wonderful to be a part of i mean it's just like life you know yeah i mean and you went from one producer well so you've got aquilino too right and then a big deal was the third right yes and then hoel yeah and then hoel is a cousin in the family no kidding yeah he's he's uh my wife grew up with his daughter and they live just where agave fields are like up on top of the ridge above the river valley yeah um and he's a, a great muscalero in his own right um We've just not wanted to overstress our palenques. And so we felt like this was a great opportunity to have Joel, who has a really, really similar terroir. And I mean, the Gave is just basically the same terroir. Yeah. Um, of course, slightly different yeast from just being in a little different area. But let's have Aquilino and Joel work together to really make that same recipe and s- unique style of narrow cuts and all that that we've yeah. learned to love of Aquilinos. And let's have him do the Espadine. And Aquilino can then focus on elote and special batches. And that allows us to expand our production without stressing the palenques. And we really strive to this thing that we don't want to collect mescaleros like jewelry or something like that, which I I feel some people can be a little bit guilty of. And what we want is to, of course, many of them are my family. And and the ones that aren't, we just want to embrace everything about them and their health and their lives and their kids and their land and buy every drop they'll produce. Yeah. And so we've been able to now do that with our now our fourth guy, which is really, it's huge for his family. And his daughter also works in our in our, in our office down in oh, Oaxaca no and helps okay. bottle, yeah, Fatima. And, um, so, so it's, yeah, we're just growing organically, but but th- hopefully thoughtfully. And, you know, I feel like our mezcals are getting better. I hope so. You know? Yeah. Do you, so this is an interesting thing is you're, you and Dylan, crafted this brand this aesthetic right uh, maybe not the flavor exactly but i've been with you when you've been proofing which is an incredible experience mind you and that is where you get to kind of cast your wand a little bit on the flavor right so when you think about these bottles let's take anything from macalino like this latest tepestate that came out which is lovely and kind of dark and chocolatey and stuff but how much of it do you feel you have a hand in or do you feel comfortable saying i have a little bit of a thumbprint on this bottle because it's Aquilina's, you know, it's his heritage, it's his work. But you still come in and you have some nuance that you bring to it. Yeah, these guys are masters, and 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 I have no history in spirits, so yeah. it's really interesting. And but there's they're so micro focused on their region and their style of mezcal and stuff, and you know, just naturally from growing up and especially from traveling around in different markets, I, I can learn about wine and other yeah. spirits and food and bring in all this perspective. So I don't think that I have a heavy hand in there, but there's no doubt that I've influenced some things. Um, And I really try and nudge, and I try and nudge in the right direction um, and not the wrong direction. I really feel like, I mean, it was very easy for us to fall into being real purists, and I think even the writing on our website, we're going to redo some of our website, and it's a little bit, you know, some of the words, you know, are a little purist. Right. right. But I think we're 
so deeply, obviously rooted in tradition, being you know a family that's made mezcal forever and never as a way of uh, a business, just as a way of life. Um, but we're definitely not stuck in the past, and 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 we really want to talk about things like you know bringing how we bring stuff down to proof of a certain batch and right, and, right. and taboo some things that might be taboo, um, and uh, and really talk about it and I and just show that we're thinking about what we're doing. So early on, you know, I had some influences. Um, as far as the actual like more bringing to proof than anything that right. would have happened in the actual fermentation or distillation R- really in the bring down to proof was where I, I, I meddled a little bit. Yeah. Um, but the only things we did, we helped Aquilino realize the, the maximum potential of his style that he already had. Yeah. And, and, and now it's, we learned so much about that and the way to ask the right questions and the way to approach it. Um, and then as we've brought in some other mescaleros, it's been a lot easier to like know exactly sort of what we need to say and achieve the goals, which are, you know, taking this beautiful diamond or, or gem right, right. and maybe just polishing it ever so slightly to help them really realize um, the best possible iteration of, of their own style. That's what a good music producer does, right? You take the talent of the people that are recording, but you just nudge them. You just push them. A little bit further and then that's what ends up delivering amazing product yeah and it's not just in the recipes either i mean we of course you know cut our chops in mezcaloteca and in c2 and those great mezcal bars and learned about this these are artists and yeah. you know of course guys like ron cooper and del mike gay you know approaching mezcal and, and opening the market the way they did but we so we we made our brand and we wanted the information on the on the you know we're not the people that invented that like here this is how it's made where right. it's made the, the agave we want we, we felt like that was the only way and the right way to do it um and we brought that to market but we could have so easily started um cutting corners and 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 we're so lucky that we went you know with john garrett in the beginning i had an opportunity to you know sell to some bigger clearance oh, I bet. and yeah. and actually like get close to being out of debt on our first sale with some of one of the big clearing houses in yeah. texas and john convinced me to instead of taking this big check to, hey, let's start with a few thousand dollar order and build this the right way. And that's, we were so lucky to have those guys say, see what we wanted to do, Mm. but push us to be even better as opposed to the opposite. And so as they've nudged us, we've also nudged Aquilino, who is a proud sustenance farmer. They live off the land. There's not money. They just grow their food and their animals and they make mezcal and they've always been sustainable. So how do you stay sustainable mm-hmm. um, and and nudge nudge in those directions with the ultimate goal just in raising their level of pride yeah. to where it should be and and I think we're achieving that. And I so think so. You guys have again the credibility, but the reputation. I think it it's a, an amazing case study in how to bring a spirits brand to market. You know, there's lots of different ways to do it. To your point, and we'll talk about this in a second. How it's kind of threatening, perhaps the quality of mezcal. But what one thing though that I have never asked you is. So you now have these really four unique uh, producers, I call them suppliers, distillers, whatever, and they have interesting thumbprints on all the flavors of those mezcalises. But for you, what is kind of your preference in flavor? Do you like lighter things? Do you like darker things? Does it change with the season? Yeah, I mean, my palate has changed drastically from when I got into it, obviously, as I've learn more about other spirits and learn much more about mezcal and just become accustomed to drinking stronger stronger spirits right. and also like the puntas and stuff like that but 
I'm much more drawn to clear representations of the natural resource. Yeah. Like, I feel like Aquilinos are my favorite mezcals. I absolutely love Amigdios mezcals, mm-hmm. and, and, and I love Tio Ray's mezcals, and I love them at different moments. Like, I, I might have a Tio Ray mezcal that's more decadent right. after dinner, but I won't sit there and drink them all night, per se, because they're so decadent, mm-hmm. you know? But Aquilinos, my father-in-law's mezcals, are these clean representations of the raw natural resource, the plant. And they're, to me, they're almost like a great eau de vie of the fruit of this piña. Yeah, yeah. And so that, like you were saying, it's a sense of place I'm looking for when I drink. Um, and and I, lo- I love to drink Aquilinos mezcals. I just feel like they're so elegant and clean, yet so real. Yeah. Um, it is. It's To me, it's very Beatles-esque. And I know that I always go back to music, and I think Cisco gets tired of me doing this shit. But I think about Igmigdios, and it's very Black flaggish to me. It's more in the garage, but it's still refined, and you can tell that there's this insane sense of vision that comes from it, but it's just delivered in a completely different way. And Aquilino is that refined guy, you know, writes a hell of a melody with those things. And that's what we're trying to, I mean, there's just so much noise in this world, advertising and everything, and we're trying to add to the conversation and not the noise. And it took three years of searching, you know, a lot of days, a lot of driving around and, and connecting random places on crazy dirt roads in Oaxaca and hundreds of palenques to find what we were looking for when we found Amigdio. And, and what I wanted was something raw, yeah. yeast forward, almost a flawed that you couldn't get, like a great wine, a flawed wine that you just can't get enough of that same flavor. Yeah, and, that's exactly it, yeah. And so they, I felt like Amigdio Harkin was this great addition, not just to Vago, which it certainly is, but also to the American market. I feel like this is, you know, we don't want to add something that's going to replace something else. We want to really add to the conversation. So I think Tio Rea and Demigio do that, but in such a different way. It is completely. Different voice. Yeah. And I mean, the that Tobala from Demigio is one of the finest things you guys have put out because it's got everything, but it's just, it is flawed in how exposed it is. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because that caught, like the stuff from... Uh, Aquilino is so refined that it's like he had a chance to practice it, right? But the single distillation stuff from Igmigdio is just bold into in your face. It's loud, it's soft, it's everything. And that's a really riveting experience as a drinker, you know? And the fact that you have these four players, if you will, in this motley crew of, of producers, right? Like, you can get every different emotion out of these four guys now. It's kind of an interesting way to do it. And I don't know that that was probably intentional. You probably just expanded naturally, right? No, it's, it was pretty intentional. Oh, good. All right. <laughs> I mean, well, the maestro of judo, right? Well, not really, but I mean, there's sort of, it, I mean, it, in hindsight, obvious seeming. I mean, we I had Aquilino and I was like, I want to bring a Tobola and Baro at the same time so that we're, we have two unique voices at the same time. I yeah. think that was a pretty obvious step to find something that's really counter to Aquilino. And, and we did launch those two together, those two guys, uh, Uncle Ray, Tio Ray, and, and Aquilino. And, um, but then I, I want we needed I mean, we turned on a lot of sales and we could have used a third producer but I just it's like the perfect storm to find great mezcal you know a guy that's humble and mm-hmm. easy to work with that really needs help and wants help um, and actually has agave as yeah. we know is a huge problem um, but the more time I've spent down there the more I feel like the the natural airborne microbes, those yeasts are contributing so greatly to the flavor of yeah. the mezcal. And so I had this 
idea in my head. I mean, I'm not a big wine person or drinker and very knowledgeable, but I get to drink wine out of some amazing books from our, our geeky wine distributors. Sure. And I've fallen in love with some of these like flawed wines. And so I had this idea of like something on the nose. And I think Amigdio's uh, Madre Quiche just has that crazy tahini nose. It's and, very, yeah. Yeah. So that's what we fell in love with. And, and, uh, and so w- we were looking for distinct voices in a chorus. And I, and I think, not just to Vago, but to the market. And hopefully we've done that and people appreciate it. Yeah, it's an amazing way to look at it. It's musical. It goes back to nature, too. I mean, it's, it's all of this stuff. <laughs> I'm going it's, with you. Yeah, it's, which is good. I know you're a big music guy. you a failed bass player, as we all are. <laughs> but so there's a few more questions I've got for you. And I know you guys have got some great stuff to do here still in Austin. There's a happy hour tonight at Half Step, and I'll see you guys there. But the... Mescal, the narrative is unfolding in a much, it's getting wider and larger. More people are hearing about Mescal. There are 10 new Mescalists coming to the market every week in Texas, as I've been looking. Is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? I mean, I have a lot of different voices in, in my head about it. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. on one level, I'm terrified for the competition because I have the weight of those families and the success. And we don't want to just make them a little bit of money we want to change the course of their lives for generations hopefully not not to be wealthy but these are towns where there is no economy whatsoever and you know we've had all the great stories like other mescaleros of reverse migration and all this stuff so we want to continue that success um and it's hard you fight you know i'm half a passionate you know you know fan of mezcal and i'm half a businessman that wants to coldly calculate how to, you know, it's take tough, down right? my competition. But right. I really try and shy away from that stuff and just keep grounding myself and just turn off the social media where, you know, instead of getting upset by seeing these posts uh, or something like that, 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 that either competitively make me upset or yeah. further being not factual or something make me upset and just try and at every level and you know one of the big reasons we hired francisco and also houston when he was working for us and and me and dylan talk about this on a daily basis is you know what can we do to make ourselves better to do a better job ourselves and in the end that's all you can really do and one thing i've learned you know coming into the business world you know with without experience is that if you actually take a lot of care with what you do you'll be doing a much better job than most of those other people. But I think there's some other interesting aspects to talk about, you know, with all the big money getting into Mezcal. Right. It's really easy to see that it's inevitable. First of all, we just got to accept that it's inevitable. There's multinational conglomerates that have already bought into Smell Mezcal. the blood in the water, man. Yeah. And it's going to happen, you know. Um, so you can choose to look at that as a negative, and I think that's the easiest way out and just, complain bitch and, about it right yeah. yeah we saw some stuff on facebook this morning with certain brands getting bought out by bigger brands and mm. people really are being negative about it and, and um and rightly so i mean it's really easy to fall into that but you can also try and see this as an opportunity and say okay these brands that have all that money and and these corporations that have all that power like let's try and lead them to do the right thing right at least on some basic levels like hey, let's make sure that they're not doing agro-industrial farming. Let's make sure that they're like, you know, state farming more or less. Let's Mm -hmm. make sure that they're letting 10% of their plants go to Kyote and to seed. So we're getting cross-pollination, learning from the mistakes to Kilomade and and not making those same mistakes. Um, 
having them get a nursery that's 50% from seed and why not have them have some wild agave varietals in there that they're giving away at cost or, or for no money to other right, people. Right. And I think, I think those there's no reason they wouldn't respond to that. It only makes them look better. They'll, it'll, it's better for their businesses long-term. And these yeah. people aren't unintelligent. And the brands that have positioned themselves to partner with, with some of those bigger companies, the people, our peers that are in those companies are also intelligent humans Absolutely. and open to um, different ways of thinking about this. So I'm choosing to try and see this as an opportunity and to push not as much through words, but more hopefully through action. And there's one of the things that John said, and he didn't obviously coin this phrase, but a rising tide raises all ships. And I really do feel like with Mezcal, the more people you can get it into their hands, the more inseparable it will be for them. They will be connected to it. This is what everybody's looking for right now. This is why we want to know where our food came from. This is one we're so interested in organic. I mean, what better spirit to help that dialogue than Mezcal? And the the good part of it is you guys are focusing on making sure 10% go to seed, you know, that you're doing these different methods so that you don't repeat the same mistakes that tequila has. And that is, that's the key. There's going to be shit mezcal. There's going to be great mezcal. But that's always the case. There's going to be shit gin. There's going to be great gin. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, I just think mezcal's in the hot seat right now. And it, it's just, we're super focused on it because of social media and stuff. But I'm glad you're being positive. Yeah, and we're facing, I mean, to be fair, we're facing some problems. I mean, with, you know, uh, how much agave there is, yeah. um, you know, the way the money's distributed, that kind of stuff. And, and these aren't simple problems. There's not simple answers. They're very complicated issues. Right. And so we need to have a dialogue and we need to look at history and learn from our mistakes and have a clear, unified vision for the future accepting the tide that's coming yeah but trying to influence and influence it and push the curve as much as possible i believe yeah you can prepare you can get safe at least start talking about the tsunami that will inevitably hit but so we've talked about some stuff and i don't know i've, I've talked to john garrett a little about this too i don't know if it's official yet but are you talking about some other new things that you're working on that may perhaps be ready ready to put into a bottle after sitting in a barrel for some time we're, we're really close to <laughs> something new here, um, which I'll, I'm happy to talk about it. We've shown it a little bit, and yeah. I'm, I'm really excited to get your thoughts on it. Um, there's amazing agricultural-style rum producers in Oaxaca making yeah. Aguardiente de Caña, and it's considered dirty by a lot of people. It's kind of how Mezcal used to be, sure, you know. Sure. Um, but they're making this in these cloud forests, and they're growing cane on their farms not for sugar production you know those four or five varietals of cane um and they've been doing this for generations and it's 100 percent cane juice you know pressed cane juice and it's wild fermented and it's made by one guy in a pot still in the cloud forest of oaxaca that's amazing and so i've been really passionate about this for four years or so um and I've tried to turn some people onto it, yeah. um, and they were just like, "You're crazy," you know. The, and I, these were some pretty rough, rustic ones I had. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they, and so I kind of lost my confidence a little bit, but I still had some collecting. Then our Italian producer, or our Italian importer, mm-hmm. um, Luca Gargano from Velier, who people don't know as much in the U.S., but this guy has been importing rums to Europe for 35 years and has 
some of the most famous and incredible rums of the history. Wow. And he's the one in, in recent years who single-handedly has pushed um, Claren, the mm-hmm. Haitian rums, and these are pot-stilled, wild-fermented, whole-breast cane juice rums to Europe and created a market for that. He's done a great job with distributing our mezcals in Italy and, and beyond. And uh, he was, you know, we had we spent time at Tio Reyes in Oaxaca one day and and, and I knew that if anyone understood my love yeah. of this spirit, spirit and had a perspective on it beyond, you know, my own and would know this was the guy. And I tasted him on it and he just lit up. And it was everything that he's about and he's so excited. And, Amazing. And so I gained all this confidence and now I'm like, okay, this is a thing in <laughs> Europe and America will like it in three years. Yeah. And and so we, we we pushed and made a label. Um, It's separate from Vago. It's mm. a sister label. Um. It's called Paranubes, which is for the clouds, and it's a single word that we combined two words and made up a word so it was easy to trademark, and it has a lot of uh, meaning for us. And it's Aguardiente de Caña. It's whole pressed cane juice agricole style rum. It's amazing. You know, and it, and it's fantastic and a daiquiri. It's going to be 54% ABV, a liter, you know, hopefully hitting the market at, you know, not ridiculously cheap like some rum eight dollars right, or right. something but you know hopefully to bartenders that under 30 bucks and wow. they can use it in cocktails and um and when do you see it finally hitting it uh, like in a month or so holy shit it's yeah. that close yeah we're a, wow. we're a month or two out so I'm that's incredible about it, yeah i mean it's it's nice because you go from mezcal is not a trend it's just an emerging market right tiki is i don't think it's a trend i think it's another emerging i think rums will start to pick up more momentum and more speed and i think that people will start to maybe even have a preference right i think people are ready for this too i mean it's it's funky on the nose it tastes like cane yeah. i mean in a big way um but the way that that nose and flavor shines through like in a daiquiri is just incredible um and i think you know with you know cachaca and some of these other right and the funkier rums and the and the you know right hopefully rums ha- gonna have its moment and probably already has and, and will more i'm sure um but, uh, you know, I think it's a, a thing. Like, I, I was talking to Elisandro from Tospa, and his, you know, they lost their sort of tradition of mezcal producing for years, but mm. but their father had been producing cane spirits, and so they're thinking of doing a, or I think getting ready to launch a similar oh, thing, incredible. which I think is really cool. And our goal is to bring something new to the conversation, as always, really start something from scratch. Yeah. But the potential, if this opens a little bit of market for Oaxacan agricultural style rum that's produced on farms and not in some kind of factory yeah yeah um you know economically for a couple of those regions over 10 or 15 or 20 years is really exciting to think about you know wonder what will happen there i mean to be able to contribute any way positively like that to an economy that you gotta feel pretty good about that yeah and it's been showing well so we've showed it to uh, people who i felt had the best minds about spirits and yeah. rums and would give me a really honest opinion and not you know not just say what you know be nice and and people seem genuinely really excited about it and with you know how excited people are about oaxaca and all yeah. that i mean it's never going to be like some massive spirit category of no Oaxacan but it's, rum but it but it might be good yeah. for the geeks you know well and to do anything positively for that economy i mean it's all it's all win at that point right so all right so this is exciting plenty of mescalism an agricole style. I mean, the, I know. I can't. I can't wait to try this thing. So here's the last question I've got for you. I, I think it goes without saying how outspoken of a fan I am of you guys. I mean, Houston Cisco yourself, Judah, and the the products. I've been collecting the bottles, getting them shipped in from all over the place just so I can have it because they're not. Sometimes you know, it's 
pretty tough when you got to the Tobolo trying to buy everything that comes in from Pago. But anyway, so you are at your favorite bar in the world, okay? So this is slightly a different question for you because you make these mezcals. But what would be one of those legendary mezcals that you would sip? And who would you sip it, sip it with? Anybody alive? Anybody deceased? Someone you'd love to have a conversation? What would that mezcal be? And who might that person be? That's right. On the spot question. <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to go deep into my mind here. Uh, let's see. Oh, man. Let's sip some Tobolon Barra with Jerry Garcia. Why not? Oh, shit, huh? yeah. Why wouldn't you? I think that'd be pretty pretty intense. You'd probably take us some places, I think, right? In conversation. What's well, good, man? There's lots of good stuff coming out. And again, the, the addition of Mcdio and well, I mean, you got a pretty fierce team. How you feeling about the future here? Just humbled and thankful, you know, that I am able to represent those families and, you know, be part of, you know, these people's family and, yeah. um, and just, you know, I feel the weight of it. I feel the excitement, you know, some dread for the future, but mostly just all positive and, and feel like a human being, you know, and, yeah. and, uh, and just thankful and, and, and going to do my best to, to keep it real, keep the noise out yeah. and, and just do the best we can for the people that love Vago. Be grounded and be connected. Stay positive. That is the message we all kind of need to put out there right now. So, Jude, it's been a long time in the making, man, but finally glad to sit down and chat. It's been really inspirational learning how you guys do things. And honestly, it is the impetus. If I ever get into Agave, you'll, you'll be the reason why, man. So thank you so much for sitting and chatting with me. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Godspeed, guys. Well, there we have it, Mr. Judah Cooper of Mezcal Vago, the founder, the man, the myth, the legend. Thank you so much for spending some time in your brief Texas trip to chat with me. And thank you, Bill Norris, for setting up so many years ago that drink tank that allowed Judah to introduce this fine collection of spirits to Austin, to Texas, and so much more. That moment, those conversations with this surfer guy, that's what inspired me to do so many things. And honestly, had it not been for talking to Judah, spending time with him in Oaxaca, the passion for mezcal, agave, sotol, all of these things would never have been ignited. So I really, really feel influenced and inspired by the stuff that Judah continues to do. And I can't wait for you guys to taste this sugarcane spirit as well. It's punchy. It's fresh. It's crisp. Thanks so much, guys, for making this happen. I can't wait to see you and share mezcal sooner than later. And thank you, everybody, for listening to Show to V with Mike G. No matter if you get scared when you're watching a show on Amazon Prime that was an HBO series and all of a sudden it seems as if it's no longer available and then it reappears, or if you're thinking, man, it's 100 Days with Trump, what the hell are we doing and where the hell are we going? Please keep dancing.